Welcome back to another week of the I Need a Title podcast. For this week's episode, I spoke with Dr. Kennethy Haney, a health professor at the Lake Worth campus. I first read about her in 2017 when she received a leadership award for her work helping those afflicted by human trafficking. Much like the cool cucumber, Dave Rossman, her legend grew every semester one of her students was in my class. They would often speak about how wonderful her course had been. Our conversation took many unexpected turns And I definitely have enough material to milk it for two installments. Kennethy was attending to her beautiful daughter while also talking with me, and she took a few moments to get the little one comfortable. The recording picks up a few minutes in. I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, well, I guess I'll start with uh, the, the kids, perhaps. How has this transition been for you? Because I've spoken with a couple of different people, but I think the youngest child was three and you're, uh, you know, having to do all this stuff with a baby in your arms. So any perspective that you can share on how things have been going? Um, I mean, things have been going well. I'm good at juggling, I guess you could say, and multitasking. So, um, you know, my daughter's five and a half months now and then my son he'll be six at the end of the month so having the infant um, I did have child care um, from her grandma before all the COVID stuff Um, but she is um, older and also um, in cancer remission Mm -hmm. so she can't watch the baby anymore because we can't risk her you know, contracting COVID and she has a lot of grandkids and kids. So she's been just staying at home to be safe. So I, you know, lost that, um, with childcare with, with my little one. So I try to manage her naps and stuff like that, but it doesn't always go according to schedule. So whenever I would have my uh, live classes for my face-to-face online, I would try to make it where she would be sleeping. Mm-hmm. And if not, um, you know, I would just say, oh, my teaching assistant is here today. <laughs> <laughs> so, but some of my students were helping their siblings or they have kids as well. So I think it made them a little bit more at ease too, sure. you know, knowing that everybody has these real life situations going on um so I just try to be flexible with my students and I know they are flexible with me but I always was able to do my classes and then in terms of grading and all that I try to wait till she go to would go to sleep or do more at night too and then my son he has class live class two to three times a day so when the teacher was scheduling at first, it was going to be during one of my classes. I was like, oh, no, we got to fix this. So his teacher actually changed the class time for me wow. because I was also teaching live at the same time. Mm-hmm. So and he's in, um, you know, he's a little guy and he's in pre-K. So he needed 
a lot of us, he needs a lot of assistance in class. Sure. He can't do it on his own. So I, you know, I have some friends with older kids and they're a little bit more self-sufficient and mm-hmm. I have two little ones that, you know, need me a lot. So it's been interesting. Like I've been happy to be home with them, but it's been a lot more work. One going re- fully remote. I mean, I teach online anyways, but it's still different. You know, it's still sure. a lot more work for my face to face. And then, you know, having to manage my son's classes too. And then he, he has like two to three homeworks a day too. And sometimes homework before his second class, like Mm -hmm. after his first class, they'd be like, okay, do this before the next class. And I'd be trying to teach my own class. And some days I'd have to say, well, forget it. You're not doing your homework right now because I have (laughs) to teach my class. We'll do it later. (laughs) So, but it's, it's worked out. I just think it's definitely been uh, a lot to, to maneuver, but it's been okay. Sure. I, I'm curious if you've had any, uh, and you're welcome to decline to answer that question, but uh, have you had any negative experiences with students being grumpy and saying, you know, that the world needs to revolve around me or something along those lines? Where um, ha- have students by and large been understanding of, you know, the world is in a different place? Or have you experienced any, uh, well, grumpiness, I guess? I think, um, I don't know. Overall, like, I have a really good relationship with all my students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some students have had a lot of anxiety, rightfully so, especially with the switch to fully remote. So, you know, I think I kind of preface things with, you know, we're kind of all in this together and we all have stresses and anxiety. So let's kind of, all work together to figure this out because uh, some of my students have kids have siblings or even had to work even more because of their profession sure. during COVID so some students you know didn't want class um, to be at the same time that they normally would have it some did so I you know of course I did my class time that I normally would have but I also recorded lectures too Mm-hmm. And then I, I recorded the sessions so they could view those. And then I made sure to have enough video for them and instruction plus was more flexible with my deadlines. Like I'm very strict when it comes to deadlines because I feel like in the real world, you can't be late for work. You can't be late on a project. You could lose a million dollar deal you know, and I try to impart that on my students, but with everything going on, I had to be more flexible this semester. So I think some students, a couple of students had, uh, you know, one or two freak outs, but we, we worked through it and, you know, I just try to deescalate the situation because it's just high stress for everybody. I think everybody's going through in a sense Um, a collective trauma from everything with COVID and depending on the stressors you already have in life, you know, that's increasing. You know, if, if I didn't have kids, if I didn't have other uh, people I needed to care for, it would be a little bit easier. And then if I wasn't required to be out in the community even more, um, you know, some of them are healthcare workers and now they're working 80 hours a week. So, so it just depends on your situation. And I think having 
empathy and understanding and compassion too. And just having the conversations. Like I found that if we just had the conversations that people felt much better and also gave the students a chance to be heard and from other students too. So some students were like, wow, I shouldn't be complaining. I have it easy. You know, I'm, I don't have that much that I need to be doing right now when they're hearing some of their classmates stressing about everything else, but not to say that there isn't stress for everybody. It's just different. And, you know, we just talked about it. You know, I teach health. Um, so we talked about it in terms of a health standpoint as well and how this was impacting us, not just from somebody contracting COVID, but mental health, you know, emotional health, social health, um, and then also how it's affecting us physically and then what we can do to, to mitigate the negative effects and how else can we look at things in a positive way. So after hearing their stresses, it's like, okay, now what can we do about it? You know, how can we lessen some of the stresses? In some areas you can't, but in some areas you can. So like students who miss social time, you know, they had our class time, but I'd encourage them to go more on social media, which I usually don't encourage. <laughs> <laughs> or to do like a, you know, Zoom with their family or friends, um, you know, have a meeting time. Some of my friends were singing happy birthday to each other in a Zoom meeting, you know, or a Google Hangout. Um, also, some students were like, well, I can't really be active because I can't go to the gym. And I was like, well, go for a walk. Sure. You know, or look up a YouTube video. Um, do some body weight exercises. You don't need equipment. So we did all sorts of things to help them mitigate their stress. And some of them who had more time and usually say that they can't eat healthy I started challenging them on, you know, well, now you have time to cook some meals. <laughs> so why don't you avoid Uber Eats and delivery dudes and try to, you know, make a healthy meal? Absolutely. So. That, that's something I've noticed uh, in my own experience. I, I've, uh, I, I didn't have the excuse of I'm always on the run anymore. So, uh, and it's significantly cheaper to not eat out yes. or to eat, uh, food that's not good for me or people it's that's very true like I had so many students would say oh well, I get the dollar menu and I'm like well do you get one thing on the dollar menu no I get mm -hmm. like six I'm like okay then it's not cheaper they're like well it's easier and I always argue with go buy a pack of chicken get whatever vegetables on sale get a fruit that's on sale or you know bananas are always really cheap um get a bag of uh, quinoa or basmati rice or something like that and literally you can make a meal at night and then have enough for a lunch and dinner the next day you know eat your fruit and then if you don't eat chicken you can always do beans or something else mm -hmm. um, and then also for dairy or a replacement because you need the vitamin d and the calcium if you don't eat dairy you could do you know almond milk um, or you can even do 10 minutes of sunlight for your vitamin D, but if it's longer than 10 minutes, you want to make sure you have your sunscreen. And then for calcium, you can also get it from leafy greens. 
So I actually had a lot of students try to do different meals and vegetables, I think are always hard students. I know I don't really like vegetables. A lot of my <laughs> students don't, but you know, I, I told them, you know, roast them in the oven, like literally get a baking sheet. You can use some olive oil, coconut oil, throw your veggies in a little, uh, I like the Himalayan salt or sea salt's okay, some pepper, and put it on 400 for 20 minutes, depending on the vegetable. You know, you might have to cook it a little bit longer, and it's actually really good. You know, I tell my students, I don't really like eating things that don't taste good, except for some vegetables, but if you roast them, they actually come out really good. Like, don't boil them in a ton of water, and then they're mushy. I'm not eating that either. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then I tell them, you know, you could put it in eggs or if you eat tofu, like a tofu scramble with some of the vegetables you made the day before. So, you know, it's really easy to throw it in the oven if you are home, you know, and it doesn't have to be something extravagant. And they found that, wow, this is good and it is healthy. And if I do it this way, it is cheaper. But if you go buy the $7 little pint of blueberries, that's not cost effective. Like I don't buy blueberries when the little small container is $7, but sometimes they're the big container. It's usually like four bucks mm -hmm. or sometimes it's two for four, depending when there's the sales. So fresh is always best than frozen, um, than the canned, but make sure it's low sodium or no sugar added. Cause it's always better to add your own than what they, they put in. So I always try to t teach them, um, you know, the best ways to be, budget friendly too. Something you mentioned earlier, you said that typically you're, you're strict with deadlines because, well, there's good reasons to be strict with deadlines. And then you said that you've uh, relaxed uh, as a way of understanding and empathizing with students and whatever difficulties that they might be facing. Did any uh, students kind of think that it was a trick because I'm, I'm similarly strict, if not stricter, perhaps. And as a result of, you know, the school going into remote instruction and students losing their jobs and, you know, having to take care of things that are perhaps a little more important than calculus, I, I said, okay, you know, I'm going to relax some of the policies, uh, not in terms of grading, but perhaps when you can finish your work by. So instead of having an assignment due on, you know, a Friday night, I, ex I would extend it to Wednesday the following week. And especially in the calculus courses, they, they thought that it was a trick or that, you know, I was <laughs> trying to swindle them into doing something or not doing something. Uh, did you experience that? Especially when, you know, you're on one end of the spectrum and then you go to not necessarily the other one where you don't care or just that, right. you know, nonchalant attitude, but you know, you're quote unquote nicer all of a sudden. Um, well, you know, I still had the timeline for them that got adjusted by the one week, you know, so I updated the schedule to fit that accordingly. And I strongly urge students to still follow those guidelines as best as they could. Sure. Um, but then I made exceptions. You know, some students needed more time, but I would say there's no reason why even if I extend things, uh, you don't you shouldn't be not doing anything for a week or two weeks, you know, turn in what you can mm -hmm. and, you know, stay in communication with me. So I would explain to my students that I expected that most of them would still be meeting the deadlines or close to the deadlines, even though I'm extending them. 
but you don't want to fall so far behind you can't get caught back up. And when topics build on each other, you know, that puts you in a really bad position if you just continue to put it off. So something like math and calculus, you have to practice, you know, almost daily to continue the concept. So even though that you're accepting it late, you know, I would expect that hopefully some of the students, even if they're not doing it every day at this point, every other day, are trying to do 30 minutes an hour when they can. So I would, mm-hmm. you know, encourage my students to do it that way. So, um, yeah, they, I don't feel like they, they thought I was trying to trick them or anything. I think they knew that, that I had, um, high expectations, but understand what's, what's going on. So I remember I actually had a student in the start of every week, our session online, she would say, I have my work, I have my kids, what are you going to do for, for us? Um, and I would reiterate the same thing like I just said to you every week and um, she ended up doing fine but I think it gave them peace of mind knowing if I don't do it because my deadlines are midnight before midnight on Sundays I think it gave her peace of mind if she wasn't able to finish everything by then that it was okay if she turned it in Monday Tuesday or Wednesday the next week Mm -hmm. but you know I think it's just I think I I was trying to take the guesswork out of it for them too. So they weren't stressed by, by my class when they were already stressed by life and the world and what they have going on. And, um, you know, I told them whatever you're, what you have going on, just talk to me and we'll figure it out. So I think they also had that rapport and, and trust in me and I wanted them to feel safe uh, with me and my class, even if they weren't feeling safe with everything else. So I think it was, you know, really important for me in the beginning to to establish an even stronger relationship with my students once all this happened, because then they lost that FaceTime, you know, with me in person. But I'm also somebody who would always get on the phone with my students, even outside of class, or if they came to office hours, or if they wanted to Skype or FaceTime or whatever. You know, I've always been the way with my students that you tell me when is best for you and then I'll try to fit that in my schedule to meet with you and talk to you because a lot of them work full time and have kids and then maybe they can't really do stuff until 10 o'clock at night. Not that I'm at my best at 10 o'clock at night, but I've been on the phone with students at 10 o'clock at night because that's what's best for them and that's what's going to help them be successful. But it wasn't like a all the time thing. It was just kind of as needed. So I think um, the transition, you know, was rough at first because they just didn't know what to expect. But once they saw that I was being flexible, I think that it really helped um, them ease a little bit with the tra- into the transition more with, that everybody's been going through. Sure. And I've had some students that took you for, I guess, drug education, I think. Is that one of the courses that you teach? Yeah, I teach that too. And uh, they had wonderful things to say. So I, I had heard about you from a whole bunch of different faculty members. And then I saw uh, newsletters or emails with your name in them. And then I thought to myself, okay, so you know, this is another individual that I would like to, to speak with, but I've never had the pleasure to do so. So Hi. thank you. I, I, I don't know if I forgot to thank you earlier for agreeing to do this, but thank you. 
Of course, you're welcome. And thank you for doing these. And thank you for having me. And sure. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that in calculus, my students are talking about me <laughs> and about drug education. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's, it's wonderful when they, you know, especially when it comes to uh, clearance rates or, you know, kidney filtration rates. And I try to, uh, even in college algebra, I try to pick up examples of things that the class would be interested in instead of doing the typical, uh, you know, half-life of uranium example, which I still do. But more recently, I've had a lot of nursing students in my classes. So they're, they're more interested in, okay, so this is great, but how is this relevant to me? And typically, uh, you know, we, we discuss a lot of drug-related things in the human body in, in calculus and college algebra. So that's where, you know, they say, oh, yeah, we, we heard about something like that in my drug education class. It's like, so you're taking a class at another campus and then you're driving down to Boca to take calculus. Uh, but <laughs> some of them, you know, work near Lake Worth or, you know, somewhere near the northern campuses, but they live down here or live near Boca. So, you know, on their way home, they'll stop at the Boca campus for a class and then take the other ones up north or maybe take them online perhaps. No, that's awesome. And and I think um, I'm actually um, a little bit of a, uh, a math. I'm definitely a math person. I say I'm a little bit of a math person. I'm a lot into math. That's and, wonderful. Um, this, yeah, and the sciences. Like I've taken math up through Diffie Q. I've taken all three years of calculus with. Oh, um, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love to be able to apply. Obviously, in my health classes, I'm not teaching them calculus. But I do talk about the importance in all my health classes and, and about research and numbers and statistics and evaluating information and understanding it better. Um, and if somebody can throw out a statistic, but, you know, what does that really mean? And statistics is very different from calculus. I've taken advanced statistics. Um, it's not my favorite, but I use it in health and, and biostats, biostatistics. But my favorite math is differential equation. <laughs> so how, how did you end up in that class? Because it's not, you know, a class that people typically take as an elective. So uh, what led you down the path of, you know, I'm going to take the entire calculus sequence and then I'm going to take DiffEQ? Uh, well, actually, I was started in aerospace engineering. So ah, okay. <laughs> I, um, I did that for a while. Um, it's been a long time now, but um, I still am very into math and, and physics. But also, it's interesting because when I switched into health, I didn't realize how much of that I would use. And like I said, I've taken a lot of advanced statistics, um, you know, computer programming, even to run analytic programs on, mm -hmm. you know, biostatistics. And it really makes more sense of all these the health phenomenons that we experience. So I never got away from the math. I just kind of shift it into how I use it. So I always, you know, try to explain to my students that, you know, when they're taking another subject, how can they apply it to their field? And even when they think that it, it's useless, like some students go, well, why do I need to take algebra? I'm like, well, it depends what you're doing. But algebra can explain a lot of, you know, different things that, that you're learning when you start to quantify. So it just always depends what your position is. And even 
if you're in nursing or you're in the healthcare field, how they come up with, you know, what medicines work or what procedures or the survival rates or um, quantifying dosages, you know, you might not be doing that work on your side. You're just providing the services, but somebody did all that math. So I think it kind of helps students relate more of the content that they're doing in other classes. So when, in my class too, a big thing is I have strict guidelines that they need to adhere to meet the course learning objectives, but I'm flexible in how they go about doing it. So I look for key things in my assignments, but I tell them to do it in a way that makes sense to them and to apply it to their program or apply it to something they're interested in. So they, they remember it past that week or past that semester. And I would you mind sharing to, an example of how you uh, phrase it or, or, you know, go about making these assignments? Sure. Well, I used to, when I first was a professor, I used a lot of publisher content and now I don't so much for medical terminology. I, I use a little bit more and I definitely use the textbook. Um, cause I'm not writing a medical terminology text, but <laughs> I also give them a lot of content too, but say for my drug education or my health concepts or contemporary issues in health, you know, we have specific things that we need to look at and how different health issues affect the person individually, how it affects the family, community, society. And, you know, we talk about things from, um, sexual health you know, drug education as well, not just in the drug class, but in my other classes, you know, um, violence, physical activity, nutrition, alcohol, smoking, all these different topics. So, you know, they have to talk about it in certain contexts as what are the health issues there around this specific health topic. And then say if somebody um, is going into law enforcement, you know, maybe they look at it from if they're talking about alcohol or smoking or a drug, they might look at it from a criminal justice lens and sure. look at how it might impact um, criminal offenses. You know, where in health, we're saying, okay, what are the health issues? So, okay, if, say with heroin and the opioid epidemic, we have a lot of people that are getting arrested for these things um, and then they get out and then they keep using. So we also talk about what are some, you know, diversion programs or how can you reduce recidivism? How can we get treatment? What is the mental health issue? And also how can we reduce stigma? So, you know, depending on what their, their field is, they might apply it in a, in a lens from there and look up some data that goes along with that field of study. Um, and I'm, and it's not that I just word it a specific way all the time. I just try to tell them, as long as you're talking about the topic enough to show me you understand the topic, you can present it in any form that makes sense to you and that also is an interest or applies to your field. So I've had students, you know, they have a family member that has autism, for instance, and we have a health literacy project. So they will work on a health literacy project for half, half of my semester. And they, for that project, it's really cool, though. They get to research the topic in the library database, Google Scholar, PubMed, you know, whatever peer-reviewed sources they're more comfortable with using. 
and they have to essentially become experts on that topic. And then they'll search on social media, their topic, you know, and they'll look at what are people posting? What are people commenting? And, you know, you can get two sides of um, any topic, very extreme on social media and a lot of it not based in fact. So, but they already looked up the research, so they're supposed to be the expert. So they'll actually, they have an assignment where they comment on what they're reading and if it's accurate. And then they'll back it up and show me some of the references they have that show this is inaccurate. Or yes, this, these posts are appropriate based on the research. And then they also, you know, they have to understand the health disparities around the issue, which is the differences in outcomes among different groups. So say they're looking at alcoholism, and then they look at it by age range or gender or sexual orientation or race or ethnicity. So they'll also explain where more of the health disparities are too. So now they've looked at the research They've looked at the data. They've looked at what the general population kind of thinks of this topic. I also have them search like in Google News too to see any relevant new news stories that have come up. Um, sometimes they'll look, you know, while they're driving, which right now they're not driving as much, but billboards that might show something about a topic or maybe a PSA plays on TV or their YouTube commercials or something. So then they take all this information and then they create um, an infographic or sometimes a PSA, more of the students do the infographics to try to explain the health issue and then address the health disparities, but also kind of make sure that they're addressing the, the fallacies that they've seen in people's discussion of the topic and apply it and ask. Um, their audience to do something about the issue. So sometimes students just pick based on something they're interested in, or sometimes students do it more based on, you know, their career interest as well. So I find that through my projects and my course assignments, that by the end of the semester, I am totally confident, confident that most of my students understand the material to meet all of our course learning objectives. And then a lot of times, depending on their program, meet some of their, their program learning objectives, and then also our institutional learning objectives. Now with, um, you know, the information literacy, critical thinking, you know, all our different aspects that we're looking at social emotional learning, that they'll, they're taking this information and the tools that they've learned that now they can apply a lot of the skills they've learned in another class and say a year or two down the road, they're not forgetting how to find this information. And they're also not forgetting that the topics that we went over because throughout the whole semester, they were able to apply every assignment, every project in a way that, you know, made more sense to them or that they were interested in while still meeting all the um, guidelines for those assignments. And I find that it works a lot better than just here's some questions, answer them from the textbook. Although something with math, right, you do practice questions, so it's a little bit different. But then, like you said, how you switch some of your problems to meet 
say you were having a lot of nursing students, you switched how you did them so it applied more to them and it made more sense to why they need to understand calculus. And I think when we do that for our students, no matter what our discipline is, it sticks with them more and it becomes more useful. They become more engaged and not that they're going to necessarily whip out their calculus book and start doing calculus equations next year, but depending on what they're doing. can dream. Yes, but depending on what they're doing, they, they might if they go further in their education in that field. And even if they don't, when they're in practice and in clinic and doing stuff, they're gonna, it's still going to be in the back of their mind and they're going to better understand what they're doing, why they're setting this up on um, the filtration you know, of these IV bags or medicine bags or whatever it is. They're still going to understand it's so much better when we place everything that they're learning in more of a different context than just here's some, here's some numbers or here's a question, here's some data. It's like, no, let's apply this and let's go up on um, Bloom's taxonomy, you know, and get more analytic and, and understand how these all play a, a bigger picture in the world and also in, in our field. So I know that was kind of a loaded answer oh no 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 it was perfect. <laughs> wonderful uh to switch gears uh I, i've always been curious what's the provenance of your name and i know i could just google it but it, i don't know if that would be as uh, i guess fruitful of an answer so actually my father came up with my name kenneth and he came up with it by putting his and my mom's name together so my dad's name was Danny and my mom's name was Kathy. So he, yeah, so he <laughs> put them nice. together. Yeah, and I hated it forever though. Really? <laughs> I hated it growing up because nobody could say my name right. Oh. And I always thought it was weird and um, now I like it, but I didn't. Now I appreciate it. Um, both of my parents are, um, they've passed, so I feel good to have you know part of their name as part of my name and what's interesting and I never ever ever in my wildest dreams would have imagined this but um, I actually named my daughter after me because I felt like I could name her after my mom and my dad and I also named my son after my father so now my daughter has all of our names, my mom, my dad, <laughs> me, and my son in her name. So, the legacy continues. Yes. So it's, you know, guys a lot of times name their kids after them. I'm like, yeah, what the heck? I'll name my daughter after me. But it was more <laughs> so I could feel like she was connected to her grandparents who aren't here with her. Sure. So, but if you asked me that a while ago, it would have been like, no way, you know, I don't like my name. But now I like it because nobody really has it, except if you do Google it, you'll find um, maybe somebody um, of an Asian descent. Um, they might have a Kana or, or Kathy, and then they've made a, a profile that says Kanathy. And mm -hmm. I was like, I was like, if their name is Kathy, why are they using Kanathy? <laughs> um, but my dad came up with that for my mom's name, too. So... Um, and then I've seen somebody else, I think, um, in India has a name similar to Kanathy, but there's not a lot that comes up 
on my name. If you Google Kanathy, you'll just get bombarded with stuff about me. <laughs> well, that, that's in fact quite useful. You don't have to pay for search engine optimization at all. <laughs> no, Your that's name is true. unique enough to where, you know, you have Google working for you for free. I do. <laughs> so it's really easy to find information on me um, because of my name's uniqueness. Do you have any siblings? Um, so I'm the only child for my mom. And then my dad had a daughter before me. She's mm -hmm. t 10 years older than me. Um, and I'm close with her, but she lives in Georgia. Her name's Jamie. And okay. I, I was going to ask if, if your siblings had similarly creative names. Names. Yeah, no, she doesn't. Um, well, her mom was Judith and wanted to name her Jamie. So her mom and my dad um, went with Jamie. But what's interesting is she's actually Jamaican. Um, my dad traveled a lot for work when he was mm -hmm. younger. And my sister went to school in Jamaica and didn't come to the States until after she graduated high school. So um, I think that's pretty cool. And she has a lot of family still in Jamaica. And actually her mom just came to live with her at the end of last year from Jamaica. Very cool. So, yeah. All right. To continue on the the name trend, tell me about yourself. I, I know nothing about you. I know significantly more about what you teach, but I still don't know anything about you. So wherever you would like to start now going backwards or day X, Canacy is born. And then what happens? Well, that would be a very long story. <laughs> You're welcome to share as much or as little as you like. Um, well, I am. I'm from Florida. I am a Floridian. I, I grew up in Broward. So I went to school through high school in Broward County. And now I've been in Palm Beach probably. Where did you go to school, if you don't mind me asking? Um, for high school, I went to Coconut Creek High School. Oh, I was told <laughs> not to like those people. <laughs> well, where did you go? I moved to the United States in 11th grade, or I started 11th grade in the United States, and I went to Taravella High School. Oh, okay. I have a JP Taravella, where the P stands for pride. And <laughs> we were told that, you know, for some nondescript reason, we needed to hate everyone, or not we, but me. I needed to hate anyone from Coconut Creek and from Stoneman Douglas. That's funny. Um. So it was one of these weird things. It's like, why? They're students as well, and they're human beings as well. Uh, but Matt Thomas, I still remember, he sat next to me in AP English history, or AP English language, I think, in Yeah, probably. Grade. Yeah. And he said, no, we do not like the Creeksters, and we don't like the Douglas people. And That's funny. If you want to sit next to me at lunch, then you, you know, you're not allowed to say that they're people too. That's but so funny. Anyhow, sorry. Back to you. No, it's okay. No, there's like always some rivalry, but I actually went to um, Silver Lakes middle school and um, that was in North Lauderdale. That's where I grew up mm -hmm. in North Lauderdale. And half of Silver Lakes went to Terravella and half went to Creek. So a lot of my friends ended up, being split from me and went to Terravella. Um, and Terravella is in Qu Coral Springs, but would also have a lot of the Tamarack students. Mm -hmm. So those were all my friends that ended up at Terravella. Um, but in North Lauderdale, I went to Creek. They, they ended up building a, a high school in North Lauderdale 
I think the year after I started at Creek or the year I started at Creek, but it was a charter school. I didn't go there. I wanted to go to Coconut Creek because I had a lot of other friends. I moved a lot as a kid and went to a lot of those different elementary schools in the area. Um, high school, I stayed at one school all four years. I was determined sure. not to switch schools, but Coconut Creek had students from North Lauderdale, Margate, and Coconut Creek. So I got reunited with a lot of friends that I had known from elementary school too. But I, um, yeah, I went to Coconut Creek High School and then I actually, I wanted to go to the military for a while. I wanted to fly really? fighter jets. Yeah, I wanted to fly fighter jets and be an astronaut. <laughs> okay, so I, that was going to be my next question, that typically it's not something that, you know, people typically have a very strong proclivity for something, you know, and uh, some specific part of the military, but you just answered that. Yeah, so, so that's... So why didn't you do that? Um... Well, I, I got into the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy, which I was mm -hmm. very appreciative of. Um, but I wasn't sure. I was scared to make that commitment because at the time, you know, it was the four years of school for college. But if I wanted to go to flight school, it was two years of flight school. And then it was a 10-year commitment at the time in addition. So I was like, dang, that's 16 years. And I'm like 17 years old trying to make this decision <laughs> for the next almost 17 years of my life. Sure. And I wanted to do it, but I was um, a little bit nervous. Um, and I, I wasn't sure. And I honestly, the biggest thing, and I appreciate all of our service men and women. And I think very highly of the military I guess it never dawned on me that I might have to kill people. I just wanted to go fly fighter jets. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why would I never have thought this? But I mean, I was like, you know, a young kid. And it was just really hard for me. Um, and I wasn't sure. So then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and study aerospace engineering the first year. And then maybe I'll do the ROTC uh, program and um, then I'll go to officer training school is what I told myself. So I had more time to, to consider everything. Um, but then I had some different things in my family, like a family had different health issues and personal issues and then that kind of, it brought me back down to this area and I, um, I went to FAU. I finished my bachelor's at FAU, got my master's at FAU so I could be close to my family. So if I would have, you know, went to the military, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to help them because I would have had that commitment and the, that contract. So I think everything happens for a reason. And then, you know, I ended up shifting gears a little bit. And I think that's interesting, too, because, you know, I grew up in North Lauderdale and, you know, I, I grew up pretty humble and I wanted to, you know, help kids and, and be a mentor and, you know, help kids build resilience in their lives. And, you know, a lot of I saw a lot of my friends who had a lot of potential that didn't go on to, to school and you don't have to go to college to be successful. There's a lot of very successful entrepreneurs um, that never went to school. 
but I, I noticed that, you know, there isn't a lot of training, you know, even in, in lower income neighborhoods, we should be training kids on how to be entrepreneurs if they don't want to go to school. And, you know, how can we um, build that community capacity as well? So I, I wanted to, to switch a little bit. and I ended up in social work. And I was working on, you know, child abuse prevention and drug prevention. And I did that for a while. And then I kind of naturally shifted into health because I was like, well, how do we prevent all this stuff from happening? You know, how do we build healthier individuals, healthy families, healthy communities? You know, because I did child welfare for a while and I interned with DCF, the Department of Children and Families did child abuse investigations, worked with law enforcement. You know, we would go out to the calls. I also helped, uh, worked with the organization that licensed foster homes and, and, you know, would do counseling with the kids and independent living skills. And, you know, we're getting the kids at the point where they've already experienced all of these Mm -hmm. adversities and hardships. And then I'd see the parents struggling too. And, you know, of course, I had the most compassion for the children, but I'd also feel for the, the parents or the caregivers who were having these issues, you know, that put these kids in these positions. And I'm like, you know, how do we, how do we make a change with all of this? So we don't end up, you know, getting child abuse calls or domestic violence calls. So, you know, families aren't being separated. And that's kind of when I got into health, And I'm like, okay, well, maybe if we could do more prevention, maybe if we can help people be healthier or help people, um, you know, live their life from a different perspective. But then there's so many um, issues in in the system, in communities uh, that we have to to address because we don't live in a vacuum. You know, I could try to do everything in the world to be healthy, but, you know, poverty, different biases, you know, different inequalities in society, all of these things play a role and, and can make it harder for one person over another, one group over another to be successful in our society. So, you know, I really, I never thought I'd be a teacher, but it makes sense because I tutored, um, kids in high school. And then, you know, I always was doing mentoring uh, throughout, throughout my life since going to college and, and through the different career pathways I've taken kind of in a roundabout way. So I remember when I got the job, uh, I first started as an adjunct at Palm Beach State for a semester and I was pregnant with my son. And then I started full-time the next year. And And I feel like being at Palm Beach State gives me a unique opportunity to work with students who may be, you know, first-generation college students or returning back to college, you know, might not otherwise have gone to college, but maybe they lost a job or something happened and decided to to go to school. Okay, I'm going to learn something else. I'm going to learn – or try this out. Even I have students come in and go, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I wanted to try it out and see if, you know, college was for me. And, 
you know, I've taught at places like the University of Florida, which is a very different population than what we have at Palm Beach State. And I love UF as well, but I, I love being at, at Palm Beach State because I feel like the students need me more in mm -hmm. a way. And I can be a mentor to a lot of my students who need it and help them go further than they thought that they would go. And it's not just me, it's them. It's this inherent resilience that they have and this drive and determination. It's so wonderful to see in my students. But then I kind of put all my social work and public health, um, you know, things that I've learned and I apply them in my class, but also with my students. And I've, you know, I've had students tell me, because we're always working on retention and completion and, you know, how can we lower the time that it takes a part-time student to graduate? Um, you know, because students at community colleges a lot of times have families, they have other jobs, they have things that get in the way that they can't just focus on school. Um, but I've had so many students that have been ready to quit my class or ready to drop out. And, and I would tell them, no, like, of course, you could do what you feel is right, but I think you belong here. You know, you're here for a reason and it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, it just has to make sense for, for you. And if you need to take a semester off, you know, I understand, but a lot of students who take that time off, they don't come back, you know, and I explain that to them and, and, you know, I, I try to empower them to, to make their decision, but I want them to make a, an educated decision and know what they what their options really are because they have so much support through other professors, through programs at the college, the counseling center. I mean, there's so many different um, things that they can tap into that a lot of them don't know about or even resources in the community. So I, I try to link up students with stuff that we have at the college and in the community to help make them more successful. And I've had so many students that, you know, I've realized that they might not have anybody that, that believes in them or pushes them or, or knows that they can do anything that they want to do. So I think it's important for me, for one, and a lot of the professors, I feel, feel the same way at Palm Beach State that, you know, we play this unique role for our students and we might be the only mentors that they have. You know, some of them have, you know, other mentors too, but, you know, we might be the only ones, especially if they come from a first generation, they're a first generation college student and their, their parents don't get it. Um, or maybe even some of their siblings don't understand why they're going to college or what it's like. And, you know, we can be that support. Whereas sometimes I think it's important for all professors to learn too how to be more empathetic and build more rapport with students. At the end of the day, the student still has to have that academic accountability and it's their responsibility, you know, to do whatever is required in our courses. But at the same time, you know, part of our job is to advise students, not all of our students, but I make it my job to, to be an advisor to all my students as well, if that's what they want. You know, and I have had students reach out to me a year, two years later to tell me where they're at, what they're doing, or to say, hey, you remember that issue I was having? I finally am not struggling with that anymore. That's and, 
yeah. And I'm just like, you know, it brings tears to my eyes because I'm just so happy for them and I'm so proud of them. And then the fact that they're contacting me to let me know, um, it just, it's so wonderful because you think, well, is what I'm doing making a difference? And you may see it little things throughout the semester, but you might not see it right away because you're planting these seeds in our, in, in our students to give them tools for other classes, for in their life, for in their career. And sometimes it takes time for those seeds to grow. So I think that no matter what discipline you're in, I think we are all in that unique position to help our students, especially now with what's going on, when so many students are tempted to just not go back to school. You know, I've reached out to all my students and said, hey, we're still on at Palm Beach State, you know, register for summer classes, register for fall classes, just register, you know, and then you have time if, if you decide, you, you know, you, you can't go back to class because you have so much more, like I said earlier, some students are working 80 hours a week, sure. but then I tell them if you can't take a full load, take a class, you know, stay engaged. Because the worst thing you can do is get disengaged and then you get comfortable and you want to stay connected because we're still a community. So for any professor too or teacher that thinks that what they do is not having that much of an impact, it definitely is. No matter what you do, it's having an impact on our students. So I think it's also thinking about it from a standpoint of, not just being responsible for them to learn that subject matter, but realizing, you know, you're helping mold them into whatever's coming next in a sense. And, and even if we're playing a small role, students remember, you know, students remember our relationships with them, good or bad. And I went to school most of my life. I just got my PhD in December of 2018. Finally, it took a while. I took Ooh, some time. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I had to take some time off um, when I had my son. And, uh, and then I didn't want to push it off too far that I lost my credits or had to start all over that I just pushed it off and, you know, wouldn't end up doing it. So it was, it was challenging, um, you know, working full-time, having my son, going to school, back to school. Um, but, you know, I also share that with students and let them know that it's, it's hard. But if it's something you want to do, you can do it. So I think everything that I've done in my life is, you know, helped me to where I'm at now so I could be a better support to my students. And I think I, I probably take it a little bit more personally with my students, but I feel like a lot of professors I talk to feel the same way. Like, you know, they feel invested in their students. Sure. You know, and, and I think it's important to have that buy-in and then, then the students end up feeling the same way. They kind of mirror us you know, the way we are with them is kind of the way they're going to be with us in a sense. So I remember having professors throughout college, and I won't name them, but I was like, my God, like, I would never be that way. 
I think it's good to have those professors because at least you have an idea of, you know, this is an individual that I never want to be like. Yes. And I think it's almost, I don't want to say that it's a rite of passage, but if I only had wonderful professors, I might not know what the lore bound is for, you know, who I don't want to be like. That's true. So I, I personally benefited that. from having, you know, wonderful, wonderful, inspiring professors, but I also benefited from having um, people that I don't wish to be like. And it was nice to know when I became, you know, a full-time professor, I, I, I sat in my new office and I thought, okay, so I want to be like Dr. Klingler and Dr. Steinwant and, you know, Dr. Stephen Locke and all these wonderful professors that I've had. And I decidedly don't want to be like Professor X, Professor Y, and Professor Z because, you know, of these qualities that they they exhibited and, and displayed. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think you're right. And I think it's the challenges that help shape us to just like, you know, the bad things that happen in life make the good things that much better and, you know, give us those perspectives. And if everything's always great and rosy all the time we don't appreciate it as much and understand that whole spectrum um but i think it's i think it's a little different too especially at palm beach state when we have some students that we don't want them to have like a really bad first semester that they don't ever want to come back sure. either <laughs> so and i think i try to balance it within myself too like i said about the strict guidelines and the strict deadlines that I have although you know I think students have different learning styles and and I give them different methods to to learn from but I'm also very strict like on the deadlines except you know this semester I've been a little bit more lenient so I think I've had some students at first not be so sure about me but then after a couple of weeks they're like oh, okay she's not that bad and then they're like oh wait I actually really like her <laughs> or at least I think a lot of them like me. <laughs> no, so. they, they certainly do. At least from talking with a few of them, they, they mentioned that the class shares the sentiment. No, and that's, that's great. And it makes me happy because another thing, too, is... Tune in next week to hear the rest of that conversation. Until next time, for another 87 times, take care.